Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChumbaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's all set to be the strangest European Championships on record. No fans in some places, some fans in others, but the spectacle still continues in the adversity of the global pandemic in which we are currently living in. I'm Jake from What If Football and this is the very first What If Football European Championships daily podcast. Before we get going, I'd like to plug a few things, obviously we are delivering you this podcast both on Patreon, our new Patreon page that we launched last week, also on our podcast feed where you can get that wherever you get your podcast, that being Apple, Spotify, Acast, even Amazon Music. Uh, so give us a like and a subscribe on any of those and obviously a five-star review. Help us boost those al- algorithms and, of course, free on Patreon. Our Patreon page is patreon.com wife forward slash what if football and after the European Championships we'll be delivering content every single day pretty much all year round except for Christmas give myself a break there but on that you'll receive a few podcasts a week head to head um, great games contemporary football podcast as well as of course football manager content as well so get yourself down to that it's three pounds a month or even if you just want to uh, give some general support to the channel that's a pound and that'd be greatly greatly appreciated and thank you if you have already done so Let's kick in. Let's get stuck in with today's show. So we start where? Where else could we start? Other than Group A and, of course, the big name, the huge name in Group A is Italy. Italy are managed by Roberto Mancini. Mancini has been with Italy since their failure to qualify for the 2018 World Cup, which now seems like a distant memory. Italy have just lost one competitive fixture with him as coach, and that was the UEFA Nations League game. Right at the start of his tenure in September 2018 to Portugal, Portugal of course, who went on to win that tournament. Some of the players that they've got, some of the key players, you've got the likes of Giorgio Chiellini, Leonardo Bonucci at the back, you've got Marco Verratti, Nicolo Barella in midfield, you've also got Federico Chiesa on the wing, you've got Chiro Immobile up front and of course Andrea Bellotti up front. It is a squad that is right on the median age for its average age, but the likes of Chiellini at 36, Sivigu, the backup goalkeeper at 34, and Minucci at 33, bring that average age right up as well. Francisco Acerbi as well, the backup centre-half is mid-30s as well. So it is a youthful team in its essence, really. Barella is 24, you've got Raspadori, who's uh, the surprise uncapped player, he's 21. So it is a youthful team, really, in essence. So how did Italy get this far? How did they qualify? So they qualified with flying colours, they're one of five unbeaten teams for the tournament, one of only... Two teams with 100% records in qualification alongside Belgium. They conceded just four goals and surprisingly, half of those goals came against Armenia. So uh, the Italia days, they were good times and they're still good times. They led Finland 12 points at the end of qualification. Qualified, in essence, the easiest qualification they could have possibly had. And Andrea Bellotti, 
top scored with four goals, but they had the most individual goal scorers in qualifying. They were resolute when we uh, go from the championship qualification to the Nations League, conceding just two, but were undefeated, qualifying for the semi-finals in October. The uh, the finals lineup from 2019, none of them in the uh, 2021 finals, which will of course be played in October this year. They've begun the qualification for the World Cup perfectly as well, winning three, scoring six, conceding zero, albeit they have played Northern Ireland, Bulgaria and Lithuania. The good times, the Tick Italia good times, are back after this failure to qualify. They've won 21 of 30 games under Roberto Mancini and the undefeated run now stands at 27 and three more, so essentially an undefeated group stage for Mancini would equal Vittorio Pozzo's record, which of course Pozzo was the World Cup winning manager of 1934 and 1938. And that's even before Mancini's faced a knockout stage game for his country as manager. How have Italy got on in uh, Euros gone by? Well, their first championship was in 1968 and it was a successful one. But if you look back at the score lines, of course, it was a four-team tournament back then. They um, managed to beat the Soviet Union in a coin toss in the semi-finals. This was, of course, before the days of Penenka, Czechoslovakia and 1976 and the penalty shootouts that um, have de- decided such games now and in the final, they managed to beat Yugoslavia after a replay, so it was probably one of the less convincing European Championship victories. And unlike the likes of Spain, Germany and France, Italy haven't won multiple European Championships. They wouldn't qualify again until 1980, where they went out in the in the groups, but managed to beat England, of course. Um, they played in the uh, playoff on goal difference. This was a, a, two t- a two-group tournament in 1980, where the Winners went through to the final, no semi-finals. If there was, Italy might have, Italy, well, they would have qualified and they uh, ended up finishing fourth in that tournament. Italy got to the semi-finals in 1988, but were undone by a Soviet Union side in uh, West Germany there. Again, didn't qualify for 1992, but have since 1996, they've qualified for every tournament, oscillating between the group stage exits of 1996, losing to uh, Czech Republic, the eventual finalist, Czech Republic in that one. Of course, the... Um, the pact between Denmark and Sweden in 2004 eliminated them, if you believe the uh, conspiracies surrounding that one. They went out on head-to-head, goal scored. In between those, they had the uh, the fantastic display in the Netherlands and the Belgium uh, tournament in 2000, where you got the fantastic overhead kick from Antonio Conte that won the game against Turkey. The fantastic displays by Francesco Totti. The uh, lovely little Penenka against the Netherlands in the semi-final penalty shootout win. One of Italy's... Uh, only real uh, important penalty shootout wins in their history. They often, uh, like England, tend to fall at the uh, penalty shootout stage, of course, except for 2012, which England fans will remember all too well, weren't they? And uh, in 2008, and since 2008 rather, they've sort of oscillated between quarterfinal exits. Again, penalty shootout to Spain there in 2008. Um, they would beat Spain in 2016, but again, penalty shootout was the... <laughs> was the method of killing in 2016 Germany. Of course, we had the infamous Simone Zaza penalty kick missed there. Uh, and in 2012, won a penalty shootout, of course, against England. We've got the Mario Balotelli memorific celebration in the semi-finals. That's not a word. And, um, of course, the demolition by Spain. Of course, Spain were the ultra-dominant team in Europe at the time. So Italy will be looking for a fourth European Championships final this time round. Roberto Mancini will line up in his 4-3-3, ever-trusted 4-3-3. The um, goalkeeper is nailed on. It's Gigi Donnarumma. You've got at right-back Florenzi, who has been really good for PSG. And at left-back, they tend to play more of an offensive left-back. So we've got either Spinazzola or Emerson Palmieri. They'll bomb on and Florenzi at right-back will tuck in to a three. And the other members of that three look likely to be the very experienced pair of Leonardo Bonucci and Giorgio Chiellini. Chiellini will be retiring from the international game after this tournament um, for a less experienced, perhaps more youthful face. You've got Alessandro Bastoni and he's 22. He's played a lot of football this season, won the Serie A with Inter Milan. And he's a credible option, as is Acerbi, who plays his football for Lazio. Other fringe players include uh, Atalanta's Rafael Toloi as well. 
At left back in my preview video, which you can go watch on YouTube, I, I uh, selected Emerson. He's played quite a lot, but that is in the absence of Leonardo Spinazzola, who is fairly injury prone and he could easily come in for Emerson. Likewise, Emerson could easily come in for Spinazzola, who uh, plays his football with Roma. So you've got the likes of Emerson and Taloy. They're both Brazilian-born. And speaking of Brazilian-born, you've got Jorginho in midfield, one of the first names on the team sheet. He'll knit things together. Nicolo Brella, I think he's had an absolute storming season for Inter Milan. And the third spot at the time of uh, me speaking these words is a bit more bit more unknown. And obviously in a, an ideal world for Italy, it would be Marco Verratti, as he's the linchpin in this midfield alongside Jorginho. Uh, Brelli given a bit more licence to go forward. Uh, but Verratti is injured and it looks as though he'll miss the first couple of group stage games and might not even be match fit throughout the tournament, really. All of his alternatives are slightly more attacking. You've got Stefano Sensi, the Inter Milan player, who's got a bit of a propensity to shoot from distance. He's slightly clumsy going back. Uh, gave away a penalty against Finland in qualification, for example. You've got Manuel Locatelli, a creator. He scored a wonderful goal against Bulgaria in uh, World Cup qualification, this uh, left half space that he likes to drift into, which is usually Verratti's. Um, also, you've got Lorenzo Pellegrini, another attack-minded player, good header of the ball. He can play wing as well, so he's fairly versatile. And um, Brian Cristante, who's not as creative, good in aerial duels, probably will be more alongside Giorgino in more of a double pivot, but... It is looking more likely that it will be a Locatelli or a Pellegrini who are creative going forward and will be uh, giving Italy more chance at scoring the goals, which is, of course, the most important thing. In terms of Italy's midfield, it's, it's as creative as an Italian midfield as I've ever seen and, and it's a, as attacking as a an Italian team that I can remember, really. Also, you've got to take into account Pellegrini and Stefano Sensi. They're also carrying little bits of uh, knocks and niggles going into the tournament. Out wide, Italy have got a, a lot of attacking talent out wide. You've got Federico Bernardeschi. He could also be seen from deep in this midfield three, but uh, more likely out wide. Um, but then likely he probably won't make the 11. You've got Federico Chiesa, who's had a phenomenal season for Juventus, the 23-year-old, and Lorenzo Insigne. On the left wing... Um, They've both enjoyed better seasons and they are preferred by Mancini. Chiesa is impeccable in his dribbling and he's up there in Europe with the most uh, dribbles into the penalty area. Alternatively, on that right wing, Domenico Berardi, the Sassuolo uh, winger inside forward, he's his alternative. He uh, cuts in and is a very good finisher. He, unlike Chiesa, who likes to dribble into the box, Berardi likes to uh, cross or pass into the penalty area and is up there in Europe with the with that particular metric. On the other side, Insigne is a bit more like uh, Chiesa, who's five foot four, is quite diminutive, he's very pacey, will get at defenders, and added to that, he's uh, created the seventh most shot creating actions in Europe. A wild card, on the other hand, would be uh, Sassuolo's Giancomo Raspadori, an exciting young talent, uncapped, twenty one years old. And FB ref have him similar to uh, Lille's Jonathan David, uh, Arsenal's Alexandra Lacazette, Joaquin Correa of Lazio, Antoine Griezmann, of course, of Barcelona. He's fantastic at delivering uh, set pieces, which could be another little uh, wrinkle to his Italian team. He's got a good goals-to-shot ratio and uh, pressures opponents very well, although this is likely to do with uh, Sassuolo's style of play under De Zerbe. Immobile could alternatively play left wing, but more likely to be played up front with a distinct choice between him and Andrea Bellotti. Now, despite their very different frames, their very different appearances, they are a lot more similar than you think. Obviously, Bellotti is the taller of the two, but both score goals for fun in Serie A. They've got similar expected goals, expected assists. They are fantastic at creating chances for their inside forwards. They're good at pressuring defenders. They always get involved, drop a bit deeper and have one of the most uh, touches in the Italian league as well. Blotti does progress the ball further, which infers he does drop a little bit more deeper than Immobile, which could suit Italy a bit more with the two pace inside forwards, a similar problem that, um, or rather a similar method of playing that England really have with Harry Kane dropping deeper, as he has done in the past sort of eight, 12 to 18 months. We move on to Wales now, and the manager is Rob Page. He will be assuming the role of manager with uh, 
Ryan Giggs due to stand trial in January. Page is formerly of Watford and one, was one of uh, Ryan Giggs's international teammates. Some of the players, some of the key players that Wales have in this tight-knit group of players, we've got Ben Davies at left-back or left-centre-back, Aaron Ramsey, Joe Allen, David Brooks, and of course, the main man himself, the Prince of Wales, Gareth Bale. Wales have the third youngest team at the tournament behind the likes of Turkey and England. And in terms of how fresh they'll be, they've played the third least minutes in Europe and that's only behind North Macedonia and Slovakia. In terms of getting to this stage, Wales started slow. They will qualify with the joint second least uh, goals to game in European Championship qualifiers history. And that's 1.1 goals per game. It's up there with the likes of Greece in 2004 if you want to... uh, create or manufacture a good omen about this Welsh side. Qualification went right down to the wire. Wales had uh, a 2-0 win against Hungary in Cardiff on the final day, jumping them above Slovakia and Hungary. And in the end, all four, alongside Croatia, would qualify from the five-team group with the other two progressing via the playoffs. Wales were immense in the Nations League, dropping just two points in the uh, British Isles, all British Isles clash against Ireland in uh, in Dublin and conceded just once against a fellow European Championship team Finland on the final day when promotion was already secured. The first three wins in this Nations League campaign all came with goals in the final 10 minutes and that sort of points towards a never-say-die attitude and in the end gained promotion to League A to play the best teams in Europe and this is what they'll be doing this summer as well if they can get through of course. As a result of this strong Nations League performance, it almost doesn't matter what Wales do in qualification for the World Cup because they'll get another bite at the cherry. They are pretty much confirmed, already confirmed, to face a playoff no matter what happens. They have beaten Czech Republic, fellow European Championship side, in World Cup qualification 1-0, but on the other hand lost in Belgium to Belgium 3-1. So as it stands... At the very early stage of World Cup qualification, nonetheless, uh, they'll go into a 12-team playoff for two places at the World Cup in Qatar, which is uh, fairly similar to how the Nations League playoffs won the uh, secured four places for this tournament this summer. So, Wales's European Championship history up until 2016, there was none really, but we... Uh, we must go back to 1964. Their very first uh, failure to qualify was in the preliminaries against Hungary. 1976, they got very close again, but were defeated by Yugoslavia at the last qualification hurdle at the playoffs. 1992, they went very close. A Belgium win against uh, against Germany for the 1992 tournament would have had Wales qualifying, but alas, they didn't. And in 2004, the third time lucky, but it wasn't. Russia managed to eke them out 1-0 in the playoffs and, of course... Wales would finally qualify for another tournament in 2016, the semi-finals, where they beat the likes of Slovakia and Russia. They didn't win the battle against England, but you can now say that they definitely won the war, making the semi-finals whilst England faltered against Iceland. Obviously, you've got the heroics from Hal robson Canu with that fantastic goal against Belgium, but unfortunately fell to uh, eventual winners Portugal in the semi-finals. Obviously, the best performance that Wales have had, and to be fair, in their two tournaments that they've had in their entire history, Wales have at least made the quarterfinals, losing two eventual winners. Brazil in 1958 with Pele uh, scoring in that 1-0 quarterfinal win and Portugal winning 2-0 in France in 2016, which of course Portugal won that as well. So since the Nations League, Wales have adopted a 3-4-3 or a 3-5-2 shape, which could take many forms really they'll sit deep they'll look to counter-attack through the through the pace of Dan James and Gareth Bale out wide and um, what isn't in dispute really is the goalkeeping position Wayne Hennessy will retain the number one jersey the three centre-backs are largely up in the air with Joe Rodon perhaps the most uh, nailed on out of the three you've got Ethan Ampadu who can play centre mid as seen in the uh, championship qualification but he's better in a in a centre-back three really for the left-sided centre-back, we've got two options, really. Chris Mepham could play, alternatively, Ben Davis. Davis hasn't played any football since March, though, so we could see Nico Williams deputise at left wing-back, of course. Scored his first goal in a Nations League winner in the uh, last autumn. Williams is very good at creating chances, even better than uh, Ben Davis by the numbers, at least. And uh, Davis carries the ball well, so perhaps he could be better at left centre-back stepping out with uh, Williams a little bit wider on his left. 
I pinpoint Wales's weakness at right wing back. You've got Connor Roberts playing there. He's found lacking a little bit going back. Um, defensive struggles, they tend to uh, not manage to get out to the better teams like Croatia and Belgium. Um, this accentuates Roberts' weakness in not tracking back, really. In midfield, Wales have got a very strong midfield. We've got a nailed on Aaron Ramsey, really. And his partners pretty much deviate with the system, really. In a 3 4 3, he'll get a defensively minded partner like a, a Joe Allen. Johnny Williams or Joe Morell. In a 3-5-2, you could accompany those suggestions with a Harry Wilson or a David Brooks, a slightly more offensive, more creative attacking midfielder. Joe Allen is coming in lacking a bit of match fitness. If you think about last year, he, he would have been ruled out through injury, but the postponement of the championships has given him a little glimmer of light in terms of his participation in the tournament. He's not played since March, again, like Ben Davies. And... Um, in a 3-4-3, Dan James, Gareth Bale are nailed on as a wide man, providing for a target man in the shape of Kiefer Moore, who has uh, five goals in 15 games for the Welsh. Should Moore be absent, you could play Harry Wilson as a false nine. His set-piece delivery adds another adds another dimension to the Welsh game. And in a 3-5-2, there are two options. You could have um, Bale and James as split forwards, coming out wide and then drifting in, and you've uh, also got... Kiefer Moore is a target man ahead of a pacey forward in Bale and James, but I think Page will definitely prefer to opt with a Gareth Bale and Dan James in the same team there. To Turkey, and Şenol Gunez is the 31-time capped Turkish goalkeeper, the hero of the 2002 World Cup, where he, of course, managed Turkey to third place in the World Cup there, of course, their best ever finish to a tournament. He returned in 2019 and some of the players that he has at his disposal, Mary Demiral of Juventus, Chaglash Yonchu of Leicester City, Hakan Kalhanoglu of, Le- of uh, AC Milan, Yusuf Yuziki and Burak Yilmaz, the Lille tandem, Yuziki out wide, Yilmaz through the middle. They do have, despite Yilmaz's um, advancing age, let's say they do have the youngest squad on average and are amongst the uh, freshest squads at the tournament in terms of the minutes that the collective 26 have played this season. How did Turkey get there? Well, they got here by being amongst the best qualifiers in second place behind the likes of Russia, Netherlands and Portugal. They had the superior record of world champions France. Let's not forget they beat them 2-0 at home, drew in Paris and uh, were unable to beat Iceland though. But, you know, they qualified on merit in second place. Surrendering the top spot in the penultimate game, unfortunately, a nil-nil draw at home to Iceland off the back of the loss in Reykjavik in June of 2019. However, that result qualified them for the competition. France qualified on the same day with a 2-1 win over Moldova. The Nations League, though, was a very different story. Turkey won just once in the in the qualification in the tournament there. 3-2 at home to Russia, but a 2-0 loss to Hungary relegated them to League C where they'll be playing the likes of Gibraltar, potentially, next time round. However, Turkey bounced back in the qualification for the World Cup and probably in the game of the March international window, really, at least in Europe. Turkey thrashed the Netherlands 4-2, Barak Yilmaz continuing his fantastic form from club, from the club side of things, bagging a hat-trick. The crucial game, though, it wasn't the Netherlands game, really, in terms of the big picture. It was uh, a game against Norway where a 3-0 win seemingly got them on the right course. However, they have since drawn 3-3 against Latvia, but still topped the group on seven points with Netherlands, Montenegro and Norway all on six points. Turkey have been very pragmatic in qualification for this tournament at least, but obviously with the 4-2, the 3-3 scorelines, you know, 3-2 against Russia, losing to Hungary 2-0. It's been a bit of a departure since, although I do think that Chanel Gunez will revert to type this summer. In terms of Turkey's European Championship history, they didn't qualify for a tournament until 1996 and that came off the back of finishing dead last in uh, two successive qualification groups for the 1988 and 1992 tournament. When they got to the tournament, they bowed out without scoring a goal, without winning a game, without getting a point, losing to Croatia, Portugal and Denmark in 2000. They managed to get to the quarterfinals where a win against host Belgium through two Hakan Suko goals qualified them for the quarterfinals, but a fantastic Portuguese team were waiting for them and picked them off in the quarterfinals. 
that wouldn't be Turkey's best performance at a European Championships, however, because eight years later in Austria and Switzerland, they made the last four of the semi-finals after a fantastic, well, a fantastic game, a fantastic final few minutes of extra time against Croatia. They went behind in the 119th minute, still managed to win the game, of course, through penalties against Croatia, courtesy of a last-minute equaliser, and led for a brief time in an absolutely sodden game against Germany. I seem to remember the uh, the TV feed cutting out through a stormy Switzerland or Austria, whichever one it was. Uh, they would eventually lose to Germany 3-2, the losing finalists there. And last time, Turkey faltered at the group, beating Czech Republic 2-0 on the final day, but it wasn't enough. They were fifth in the uh, best third-place teams league with uh, the top through top four going through in, the, in that occasion. If the one-year suspension suited any team, really, is this young Turkish team, they'll play a variation of a 4-1-4-1, or a 4-3-3, all fairly similar, and this flexibility is probably key to their success, really. Urshkan Shakir has probably usurped Istanbul's Basak Shahir's Mert Gunok, 32-year-old, as the number one goalkeeper. Meanwhile, in the back four, is fairly settled. You've got Zeki Celik, who's had a season to remember at Lille, the uh, marauding right-back there. You've got, on um, the left-hand side, Uma Maras, who uh, will play on the left-hand side, also plays football in France with Le Havre. Centre-back partnership is probably going to be Chaglas, Yonchu and Ozan Kabak, with Mary Demiral at Juventus, a more-than-apt backup. Sionchu is great at progressing the ball upfield, carrying the ball into the opposition half, as we've seen with Leicester City. At club level, Johnny Evans is his perfect foil in a back three. Demiral could be a perfect foil as well, a potential glove fit, really. Uh, Demiral less likely to push on. He's got good numbers in blocking and interceptions. But with us and Kabak as well, he's had a, a fairly good season with Schalke and then at Liverpool as well. He's not gotten as much game time with Liverpool, but then again, Demiral hasn't with Juve either. The average age I was predicting in my team preview video with Demiral combining with Sionchu had an average age of 24.2 with Kabak's involvement bringing it down further. Alternatively you've got Karnayan at right back he's absolutely deadly from set pieces as well but Celik will be the way to go for Gunez at the uh, championships. In terms of a defensive screen you've got one of the best in Europe in terms of his numbers and that's Okaila Konchlu. Um, despite relegation, I thought he impressed quite well in a deep-lying midfield role. For Sam Allardyce's West Brom, he's in the top 1% for recovering the ball, great at intercepting and clearing, and will sort of slot in to a defensive four if you've got Sionchu wandering. So I don't think there's anything to worry about in terms of Sionchu transitioning from a back three at Leicester to a back four with Turkey. In terms of the other midfielders that will complement Lukoshlu, you've got Ozan Tufan and Hakan Kahlanoglu, who are more likely to play further forward. They can score absolutely absolute belters on their day. Kahlanoglu is, of course, the star turn assist maker. He creates plenty of chances for his team. He's great at pressing. He does try shots a bit too often, so it could be when Turkey are chasing the lead, he might try that a bit too much. But again, he's a very, very talented number 10 in this Turkey team. Yusuf Shisiki. Lille again, and he, he will start at left wing. He's got great defensive work to uh, in terms of creating a chance to turn the ball over and um, pushing this Turkish team, counter-pressing them up top. And in terms of FB ref, in terms of what what the players that he's got similar to, he's been likened to Mo Salah, Neymar, Son Heung-Ming. He's in the top 1% for assist, expected assists. And with a, a front man like Burak Yilmaz, who is the man or rather... Kral, which means the king. He's one of the top scorers in Europe, so this combination between Yaziki and Yilmaz could be very, very profitable for Turkey in what is a pretty much open group in Group A, aside from Italy, perhaps. And on the right wing, you've got Keenan Karaman, who uh, plays his football for Fortuna Dusseldorf, and likewise, King is under, who plays Leicester. Um, could be very, they're very similar, both very similar uh, Wingers there, but uh, Caraman's uh, more minutes on the clock maybe it helps him, maybe it hinders him in terms of freshness, but uh, either one of those two will be more than apt to play right wing. But the the danger is definitely in terms of the front three down the left for Turkey. Rounding Group A off, we've got Switzerland and the manager since the 2014 World Cup knockout to Argentina 
has been Vladimir Petkovic. He took over after that last 16 exit and he has taken Switzerland to similar in 2016 with a penalty shootout loss against Poland and in 2018 with a loss against Sweden. The shadow of Lucien Favre will loom over him should Petkovic and Switzerland fail to deliver if they somehow fail to uh, escape from this group stages. Some of the big players, some of the big hitters for Switzerland are Jan Sommer, one of the best uh, goalkeepers in Europe. You've got Ricardo Rodriguez at left wing back, can also play left centre back. Granit Xhaka and Jordan Shakiri are probably the most uh, household names in Britain, at least. Um, Shakiri's the uh, fulcrum of this Switzerland attack, really. Dennis, Dennis Zachariah is one of the up and coming uh, central midfielders. He plays football at Borussia Mönchengladbach, as does uh, Breland Bolo, who's slightly further forward. And you've got Benfica's Harif, Harris Seferovic up front. They've got the sixth youngest squad in the European Championships. And they qualified with a 6 1 win over Gibraltar on the final match day. Of course, Gibraltar is often seen as a foregone conclusion. A 1-0 win against uh, Georgia in St. Gallen on match day 7. Pretty much confirmed qualification for Switzerland. Only the likes of Cedric Kitten, Granit Xhaka and Zenith Zachariah scored more than once for Switzerland in qualification. So they're fairly stoic, don't score too much goals. They didn't win in Denmark or in Ireland in qualification. Somehow managed to uh, throw away that 3-0 lead against Denmark after 84 minutes with that advantage. Um, but they are often... Better, much better defensively. Switzerland kept their Nations League spot in the top tier in League A almost by default, winning by walkover against Ukraine. And the 3 0 walkover scoreline there helped them win the head to head after a 2 1 loss in uh, Lviv, trumped the uh, 3 0 walkover. They scored six goals in the, in the uh, Nations League, half of them being in a 3 3 draw against Germany in Cologne and have begun the World Cup qualification perfectly. Two wins from two, although have played the likes of Bulgaria and Lithuania. Switzerland qualified for their very first European Championship in 1996, a bit like Turkey. They could have done so in 1972 had they won at Wembley, but they didn't. And in 1996, could have won at Wembley again against England in the very first game of their European Championships history. They would, of course, lose to Scotland and the Netherlands and be back in 2004, where they only picked up a point, that being against Croatia, and finished dead last again. Switzerland's first ever win at a European Championships was on home soil against Portugal 2-0 in a match where they were already out and would go out of the groups dead last again. Switzerland finally made a knockout stage appearance with the expansion from 16 to 24 teams in the previous European Championships, escaping from Group A Undefeated, they'll be hoping to do likewise this time. But of course, it's a much tougher group. They beat Albania. They drew with Romania and drew against France when qualification was pretty much sealed. And of course, as previously discussed, went out on penalties to Poland in the last 16. A very winnable tie there. Switzerland are more likely to play in a 3-4-1-2 or a 3-4-2-1. They have done throughout European Championship qualification, throughout the Nations League, throughout World Cup qualification. Very similar shape to Wales, very similar mindset as well. They'll sit deep, they'll build from the back. Although they, out wide, they are not as pacey as Wales. You've got Breland Bowl, who's very quick on the ball. But aside from that, they will look to create through passing structures. They have scored just eight goals in uh, their European Championship history, which stretches to 13 games and not really renowned for attacking. But with 15, 15 goals conceded in these games, they're quite solid defensively, historically anyway. Um, and they will be this time as well. Jan Sommer's the undisputable number one. He's got 60 caps, 57 more than the next goalkeeper. And I think the centre-back three is very, very good. You've got Nico Elvedi of Borussia Mönchengladbach. You've got Manuel Akanji of Borussia Dortmund and Fabian Scher of Newcastle. Three big names, three leaders at the back. Akanji might not have hit the heights of recent years this season for Dortmund, but I, um, I think he picks himself alongside the likes of Elvedi and Scher. The wing-backs do too. You've got Kevin Mbappé of Wolfsburg on the right, Ricardo Rodriguez on the left, and Ricardo Rodriguez had uh, deputised for Scher at left centre-back during the during the World Cup qualification because Cher has been uh, suffering from injuries quite a lot this summer, uh, this season rather, and that could easily be a model that Switzerland could go down with uh, Loris Benito deputising for Rodriguez at left wing-back. Granit Xhaka is, of course, a cert in midfield. He's the captain. He's dangerous from distance, as we know. 
often plays a lot better for his country than his club. His partner is a bit of a mystery, though. It could be one of Remen Frohler. Um, it's a bit like a Danny Ceballos, a good trans creator. Um, great at pressuring the opposition, of course. Of course, that is down to his um, club ties with Atalanta, who are very, very high-pressing, high-energy style of play, a bit like Sassuolo. Um, Dennis Zakaria is more of a reserve, more of a complete box-to-box. He's great at blocking, great at interceptions. FB ref have him down as more of a Declan Rice type. Remo Freuler, he creates double the chances of Dennis Zakaria, and he's probably more of an option if they're chasing a win or playing a weaker opposition, which is, is unlikely in this group stages because outside of Italy, they are almost on an even keel, perhaps, and it's a flip of the coin stuff, really. Haris Seferovic, he'll be at his fourth tournament and he scored just one goal in these tournaments and that was a 90th minute winner against Ecuador in his first ever tournament match at the 2014 World Cup. He could be could be very much the perfect foil in between Shakiri and Mbola. Too much too much more uh, brighter talents. Um, Shakiri's a bit more creative, quick thinking in his head. Mbolo is pacey, can finish as well. He's a fantastic footballer and it could be a very good uh, triumvirate there for Switzerland if they are to be successful. After this short break, we'll be bringing you a 2021 trivial teaser. Welcome back. Now, if you've listened to the Naughty's Nostalgia podcast, at the end of the show, I give a 2000s trivial teaser. But today, throughout the European Championships, we're going to do a 2021 trivial teaser. And of course, the rules are, I give you their position, two of their managers, five teammates, and from that, you will have a player who will play at the European Championships this summer. So today, we are kicking things off with a right-back. He's been managed by Sean Dyche. He's been managed by Diego Simeone. And some of his teammates have been Danny Ings, Lukas Jukovic, Eric Lamella Koke and Alvaro Morata. Again, he's been a right-back. Two of his managers have been Sean Dyche, Diego Simeone, and he's played alongside Danny Ings, Lukas Jukovic, Eric Lamella Koke and Alvaro Morata. Find out the answer tomorrow. And if you think you know the answer, let me know on our Twitter account at whatif underscore YouTube, right in the comments where you listen to this podcast, if you like. After this short break, we'll be back with the Group B preview with Belgium, Finland, Denmark and Russia. Welcome back. This is Group B and we have to start with Belgium, the big hitters from the second group. The manager is Roberto Martinez, has been since after Euro 2016 when he succeeded Mark Wilmots. Wilmots, who took them to back-to-back quarterfinals in major tournaments after a long exodus away from international tournament football of um, 12 years from 2002, where, of course, Wilmots played. Martinez took Belgium to their first semi-final since 1986 and has also faced promotion in the uh, behind-the-scenes role and he's become a technical director at the Belgian FA. Maybe he's in it for the long haul, maybe that's the succession plan should this tournament fail. In terms of the key players, we've got Thibaut Courtois in net, you've got Toby Alderweireld, Jan Vertonghen in defence. If he's fit, you've got Kevin De Bruyne. If he's fit, you've got Eden Hazard as well. And of course, Yuri Tielemans has had a breakthrough season for Leicester. And of course, Romelu Lukaku has been one of the best centre-forwards in Europe this season. They do have the oldest squad by average and the most capped squad on average with three centurions in their lineup. You've got the ages of Alderweireld, Vertonghen and Vermaelen, which can't help the average age, but they're all very concentrated in centre-half. So how did Belgium qualify? Well, to put it in a one word, perfectly. The best, really. Uh, They won 10, they conceded 3, they scored 40 goals. They only conceded home and away against Russia, and for some reason, conceded at home against Cyprus as well. They scored the most, they conceded the joint least with Turkey. You've got the likes of Michi Batshuayi, Kevin De Bruyne, Romelu Lukaku, Eden Hazard, all scored more than 4 goals. And the only blemish since that World Cup semi-final performance was a loss to England, in the Nations League, which turned out to be a dead rubber. England fell to third. Belgium qualified for the uh, tournament finals in October. They'll play France in those tournament finals in Turin. In terms of World Cup qualification, they have gleaned seven points from nine this March, drawing away at Czech Republic, but top the table after winning a pretty, pretty important game against Wales in there. Belgium have a storied career in the European Championships. Their very first their very first qualification was in 1972, where, of course, they made the semi-finals, losing to 
the eventual winners, West Germany, in two good Muller goals in the semi-finals, two one. They would finish two. Uh, they would finish third in the days of a third and fourth playoffs playoff in the Euros with a two one win over Hungary. They would reach the qualifying playoff for 1976, but ultimately lost out seven one on aggregate to the total football in Netherlands. And four years on, in 1980, Belgium qualified again, making their very first, their only so far tournament football final and to do so they scraped through the group kind of they drew against England they drew against Italy they beat Spain they were through as the uh, as previously stated the 1980 tournament was a two group eight team tournament and the top top team from uh, the corresponding groups met each other in the final Belgium qualified on goal scored meanwhile West Germany qualified a bit more a bit more comprehensively and Horst Rubrecht scored twice in the final as West Germany won their second European Championships. Belgium qualified for the 1984 edition but in an all or nothing tie in the group stages Preben Elkia scored overturning a 2-0 win for Belgium into a 3-2 defeat meaning that Denmark would qualify for the semi-finals and Belgium would falter at the groups and it is the groups where they faltered in 2000 after missing the 1988, 1992 and 1996 tournaments. After the dismal defeat to Turkey in 2000, they would miss another three tournaments in 2004, 2008 and 2012. Not really looking as though they were going to qualify. Potentially could have done it in 2012. Look out for a what if on that on my YouTube channel later on this summer. Um, and they returned in 2016, of course, in the quarterfinals. One of the favourites installed. But they would lose to Wales, the Hal Robson canoe turn on a sixpence, the Sam Vokes header, the Ashley Williams header, despite Rajan Nyingland scoring an absolute couple of world-class finishes in that tournament. But this time around, Nyingland won't be there. Martinez, though, will, and he won't stray away from the 3-4-3 that served him very, very well in his time. You've got Thibaut Courtois, Toby Alderweireld, Jan Vertonghen, and they will reprise their roles in a backline, a spine of that. The third centre-back, He's more of a shootout. It's between the more experienced Thomas Vermaelen or Jason Denier of uh, Lyon. Denier's decision-making, as I charted in the uh, team preview for Belgium that went up last night, his decision-making isn't the best. He was at fault for his goal against Czech Republic in the uh, qualification this March for the World Cup. He's out of position. Belgium do tend to favour a more attack-minded left wing-back with uh, Yannick Carrasco. He's been fulfilling that role very very well at Atletico Madrid of course they won the league and um, Carrasco is more inclined to start there after a fantastic season at that position for his club side a more defensive minded right wing back will take up the role on the on the other wing which is either going to be Timothy Castagna or Thomas Mounier Mounier hasn't had the best season for Dortmund Castagna has um, he's drifting in and out of the team but that is courtesy of uh, long-standing injury issues now Mounier with the shackles off from club football, maybe he can uh, he can deliver deep from deep very very well. He creates fantastic chances, carries the ball well, but Castagna does as well. He's more passing focused. He's got a very very high goal creating action metric in uh, on FB reps numbers. Both kind of similar in their numbers for expected assists. So if Belgium look to uh, pressure out wide, the right hand side could be as dangerous from deep in terms of their passing. As the left-hand side is from uh, Carrasco filling his boots, um, going down the uh, left flank for Belgium. Martinez will have to figure out Yuri Tielemann's partner at centre mid. You've got Axel Witzel. He's in the squad, but he's been injured since um, he's been injured since January, and it looks as though um, Dendonka will set. He's set to replace him. Of course, Dendonka can play centre half as well. Kevin De Bruyne usually plays higher up, and there's of course um, fitness worries about De Bruyne as well. Looks to have fractured an orbital bone. Will probably be playing in a mask if he does get onto the pitch at all. Um, for the tournament, he usually plays on the right wing. He could obviously play at centre mid, but in a three-four-three with Tielemans looking like a shoeing, I can't see a Tielemans Kevin De Bruyne sort of double pivot really working in terms of the defensive side of it, especially when you've got a potentially exposed aging three-man back line there. Dries Mertens, he could, his involvement is entirely dependent on Eden Hazard's fitness, really. They do have a wealth of attacking talent to Belgium. Eden Hazard will, he, he will play if he's fit because he's the main man. The pictures you see on the uh, the McDonald's advertisements recently with the uh, 
Edvard Munch-esque scream <laughs> face at his point. He's the poster boy of Belgian football, as encapsulated in that one advertisement. But outside of him, they do have a wealth of wide attacking talent. You've got the young, exciting Jeremy Doku of Wren. You have got Dries Merge, and you've, of course, got Aiden's brother, Torgan Hazard, who can alternatively play left wing back as well. And Aiden Hazard, crucially, he's not played for Belgium for 18 months now, and that is, of course, largely due to his, uh, due to his fitness problems since he moved from Chelsea to Real Madrid back in the summer of 2019. To Denmark now, and Kasper Hjulmund, he was set to take charge after the Euros, but because of the pandemic, he is one of the winners because he now gets to take charge, replacing Aga Heiride after his contract expiry. Some of Denmark's key players, of course, got Kasper Schmeichel in there, you've got Simon Kier in defence, you've got the superb midfield three of Thomas Delaney, Pierre-Emil Heuberg, and the talisman Christian Eriksen. Further forward, you've got Yusuf Poulsen of RB Leipzig, you've got Kasper Dahlberg, as well. They've got a good blend of youth and experience. Most of the starting 11 are very experienced, both on continental club level and at the national team side of things, where they made the last 16 of the World Cup in 2018. Denmark qualified for this tournament undefeated. They drew four, they won four. Uh, half of those four wins were admittedly against Gibraltar, but they held off Dublin, held off Ireland in Dublin rather, needing a point away from home to confirm qualification akin to a bit like the uh, World Cup qualification where they haplessly beat the hapless five uh, Ireland team 5-1 in the uh, playoff there. They scored most in their group despite second place Christian Eriksen of course top scoring plays more of a 10 um, whereas in Italy for his club side into he's played more of a, a deeper role more on that in a minute. Denmark was were very impressive in the Nations League. Of course, got that win at Wembley for the first time since 1983, since you know they knocked England out of the qualification for Euro 1984. Got away wins in Iceland, and they were in contention for the Nations League final. However, a loss against Belgium killed those chances on the final match day, and of course, they'll meet again this summer. They've been perfecting World Cup qualification, probably the most perfect of the lot, scoring 14 without replying their three games. Um, winning crucial away games against Israel and Austria. And since the World Cup in 2018, um, they've only lost against Belgium in the 17 competitive matches since the tournament. So, could be a very, very dark horse in this tournament. And they've got previous for that, haven't they? And that is 1992. They were dark horses then. Admittedly, they had a very, very good squad. Uh, they'd, been at the, they'd been at the European Championships in 1984, where they got to the semi-finals, equaling their performance from 1964, uh, where they've the uh, lost to Soviet Union 3-0 in the semi-finals. Spain were the uh, the winners in the semi-final in 1984. Prebenelkia, who got them through to the semi-finals in the first place, missed a penalty. They missed the crucial penalty against Spain in that semi-final to see who would get beaten by Michel Platini's France in Paris. And in 1992, Denmark thought they uh, failed to qualify again. But they were, of course, reinstated due to Yugoslavia's disqualification. They would go all the way, winning their final group game against France to qualify for the semi-finals, beating the holders on penalties, beating the world champions and favourites, Germany, with uh, John Jensen and Kim Vilfort, the heroes there, Vilfort, with a fantastic second goal there. They would go out in the groups in 1996 as holders to the likes of Portugal, Croatia and Turkey. Likewise in 2000, without scoring a single goal in quite possibly one of the biggest groups of death you've ever seen against France, the Netherlands and Czech Republic. 2004, Denmark have made the uh, knockout phase, but they went out in the, in the quarterfinals, losing to Czech Republic, of course, going through on goal scored with Sweden at the expense of Italy. They've oscillated between not qualifying in 2008 and 2016 and the 2012 group stage exit where they took the scalp of the Netherlands on the first game through Michael Crondelli, but went on to lose against Portugal and Germany. They lost in a playoff against neighbours Sweden in a 4-3 aggregate defeat for the 2016 tournament and haven't won a game of knockout football, at least in the Euros, since that final display in 1992. Denmark play more of a hybrid between a 4-2-3-1 and a 4-3-3, which is, as I say, wholly dependent on whether Hulmund lines up Christian Eriksen as he does for his 
country, which is more of a 10, more of his traditional attacking role, or he plays in more of his Inter Milan deep line register role, pulling the strings from deep. There's not really too many places up for debate in terms of lineup, which I think is a very good thing going into a tournament. Could also infer lack of depth. Kasper Schmeichel, Simon Kier, Andreas Christensen, a defensive spine nailed on, and this um, strength in depth you see here from uh, Joachim Anderson, centre-half for Fulham, on loan from Leon, of course. He's had a very good, very good season. Uh, Despite relegation, you've also... You've also got the likes of Yannick Vestergaard at uh, Southampton as well. Fantastic centre-half. Daniel Vass will likely play on the right of a flat-back four. And you've also got Robert Scurve, who is very, very attacking. Uh, could be a much more attacking option at left-back. You've also got Striga Lars and you've also got, also got Maela for uh, Atalanta, who could also fulfil those duties at left-back. So the, the strength in depth is very much there, at least at, uh, in defence. Denmark play with a low block, so Strigger Larsson or Mailer will probably be the smart, the pragmatic choice. In terms of midfield, Denmark have got one of the best midfielders at the tournament, really. They've got Pierre-Emil Hoiberg, they've got Thomas Delaney of Borussia Dortmund, they've got, of course, Christian Eriksen. Eriksen turned round his Inter Milan career this season, and with this deeper role, I, I don't think that Hellman's going to utilise that. I think he will be more of a number 10 and Denmark's success often hinges on Ericsson, really. The front three seem to pick themselves. You've got Martin Braffray on the right cutting in, and um, on that left foot, you've also got Yusuf Poulsen and Kasper Dahlberg. They're fairly interchangeable uh, between left wing and striker, and they will play more of a false nine, which is why I'm inclined to believe that Ericsson will play as a number 10, so they've got a bit more numbers in this attacking third. Alternatively, you've got Jonas Vind, who is a, a very bright, young talent as well and I do like the look of him going forward up next Russia and we've got Stanislav Cherchesov still the manager from the homecoming the World Cup in 2018 where of course Russia were heroes in the quarterfinal display where they of course got knocked out by Croatia some of the key players you've got the aging Zerkov you've got Kudrasov you've got Golovin you've got Miranchuk Cherchesov and Artem Zuba up front and qualifying for the tournament, they were one of the better qualifiers, really, despite lagging six points behind Belgium, but they won eight of their ten games. They only lost to Belgium, really, losing 4-1 at home and 3-1 away, and were amongst one of the first qualified, really. Artem Zuba was prolific in qualification, bagging nine goals, whilst uh, one of the 2018 heroes, Denis Sheryshev of Valencia, got five in qualification. The public mood, really, though, has um, it's sagged somewhat since the World Cup. It's levelled out. Really, they were they were in low spirits before the World Cup. Obviously, the World Cup was new heights, really, and since they've leveled out, they were less solid in Nations League, keeping one clean sheet, not gaining promotion to League A, and seeing results such as a five nil demolition of Serbia, losing that one. Uh, Serbia have not even qualified for the Euros. They were far from impressive in wins against Malta and Slovenia, and were beaten by Slovakia in World Cup qualification. So. It, they don't go into the tournament with the best of shapes, the best of moods. They are an aging team as well. But the European Championship's history began probably the brightest in the first four tournaments. They got to three finals in those days. They qualified with a walkover through the quarterfinal playoffs in 1960 and would, of course, win the tournament. Their only, their only uh, trophy in international football. They lost finals to Spain in 64, to West Germany in 72, and, of course, went out via the virtue of a of an unfortunate coin toss there against Italy in 1968. They do have another final under their belts, the 1988 final, of course, sealed with the Marco Van Basten Thunderbastard from out wide the volley there, and, of course, the Hullet header, the absolute blockbuster of a header. But since, Russia have really flattered to deceive. They went out of the groups as the uh, Commonwealth independent states in 1992, even losing to Scotland, and went out in 1996 at the groups as well. Similar in 2004, despite beating the eventual champions, Greece, the only team to do that in Portugal. Um, In 2012 and 2016, they went out in the groups after losses to Slovakia and Wales in 2016. And a loss to Greece, and when they went out on head-to-head, quite surprisingly though. And that was after the superb display in 2008, where you've got the names of Pavel Yuchenko, you've got the names like Ahashavin. They did begin life in uh, Austria and Switzerland with a loss to Spain, the eventual winners of course, 4-1. David Villa getting hat-trick, but they bounced back with wins against Greece, the 
defending champions, let's not forget Sweden, containing Ibrahimovic, of course. And they were set to go out in the quarterfinals to the Netherlands, who often at the European Championships begin brightly and then sort of dip away. They did in 2004, 2000, and would do so again. Pavel Yuchenko, Ash, having scoring the extra time goals against them there. But Spain had their number in the semi-finals again. And that, and that remains Russia's best result in terms of since the dissolution of the Soviet Union, that semi-final display in 2008. Russia will either operate in a 5-3-2 or a 4-3-3, with the latter potentially used for Denmark and Finland. They have played a 5-3-2 against Belgium in qualification. Either way, you've got Anton Schunin keeping goal, you've got Mario Fernandes. At right-back, you've got Dizikaya and Semenov in the middle of the defence with a very ageing Fyodor Kudryashov, Kudryashov at left-back. Kudryashov could easily tuck into a left centre-back if they had to play a 5-3-2 with uh, Karaveyev taking the left-back spot. He could alternatively, Karaveyev, play, in a, a play at left-back in a back four as well. Uh, Russia sit extremely deep against good teams, namely being Belgium in qualification. They do look slightly manic under pressure in this defence. Zhirkov could, of course, add some experience to uh, the back four or a back five at left-back as well. They have a very soft underbelly against better teams. The midfield, though, is very promising. It should look the same in either system. It should look the same from 20, 2018, to be fair. You've got Ozdoyev Oz at the base. You've got uh, Kuzyayev, two. You've got, obviously, Starman, Alexander Golovin in the three. His success really has plateaued at Monaco in the past 12 months or so. He's not gotten to the pitch as much as what he'd like to do. But for Russia, he's the, he's the dazzling playmaker in the ilk of, according to FB Ref at least, Thomas Muller, Bruno Fernandes. In a three up front, expect the experienced Krasnodar winger Ionov on the right, Denis Sheryshev on the left, the hero of 2018, the scorer of some fantastic goals in the home tournament. Kuzyayev and Zirkov, of course, are options. Zirkov could play further forward on the left wing, and it's got to be the latter's final tournament. Now he's now aged 37, maybe. Yeah, he's probably in the last legs, aren't he, really? Um, Artem Zuba is nailed on to go through the middle will be the focal point, he can drift off into channels, he can finish and he can link up with uh, Alexander Golovin as Scotland found out to their cost in uh, in the past 12 or so months. And rounding things off with the 8th and final team of this very first What If Football Euro Daily podcast and it is of course by no means least Finland. The manager is Marku Kaneva. He's been with the national team for a decade, the manager since uh, December 2016 and some of the brightest players that they've got, they've got Haratsky in defence, you've got Yeri Urinen in defence, you've got Tim Spav and Glenn Kanara as that, as that midfield pivot. You've also got the talents up front of Timo Puki, we all know. Poya Palo, who plays his football in the Bundesliga, as does Frederick Jensen, who will, more than often than not, come off the bench to score goals. Finland have one of the one of the older squads at the tournament, the fifth oldest on average. And in a fairly weak group containing Italy, Finland qualified through the traditional means through the top two berths. They lost home and away to Italy in qualification, as was to be expected, really, but also got beaten by teams in third and fourth place in Greece and uh, Bosnia-Herzegovina. The loss in Athens, however, was uh, when qualification was wrapped up three days after a 3-0 win against Liechtenstein on the penultimate match day. Finland was still within a shout of uh, promotion to the upper echelons of the National League, the uh, the Nations League, rather, in uh, to League A in the final match day, but... They would lose to Wales in a 3-1 loss in Cardiff and that put pay to those promotion hopes. They would lose home and away to Wales, but won the remainder of the matches, most notably against Ireland in Dublin. They've started their World Cup qualification campaign both winless and undefeated. They've drawn against Bosnia at home and away in Ukraine. Now, Finland are a debutante in the European Championships. They didn't enter the tournament until 1968, where they finished dead last in qualification and haven't qualified for a single tournament or looked, to be fair, relatively close to qualifying for a single tournament, even in 2016 when the tournament was expanded from 16 to 24 teams. Finland will play in a classical Scandinavian 4-4-2, but this could easily revert to a 4-5-1 or a 4-1-4-1. Lukas Ratsky of Leverkusen is one of the finest Bundesliga goalkeepers that they've got in the league. And alongside Paulus Arayuri and Jonas Toivio, 
it's a familiar spine. They've played 14 games together in the past four years, which is the majority of them. Flanking them on the right, you've got Yuko Raitala, a progressive passer at right back, and uh, Yeri Urinen on the corresponding fullback role. A 26 year old of Genk, he's got experience in the uh, Europa League and in the Belgian League, of course. Robin Lud gets down the byline and delivers wicked crosses at right mid. He could be very, uh, very instrumental at providing the likes of Timo Puke in the uh, centre of the pack if they go down that route. The heartbeat of the Finnish team, though, is seen through the middle. The 34-year-old captain, Tim Spav, is hoping to overcome injury concerns and little niggles to uh, to uh, play in the tournament. And next to him is, of course, Rangers' Glenn Kamara, with uh, Robert Taylor probably deployed down the left. The glut of forward seeds, three places going into three people going into two places, really. Timu Puki scored 10 in qualification. He's nailed on, but he's in a race to be fit for the opener against Denmark. He'll likely be one of the two, obviously. Augsburg's uh, Frederick Jensen and Union Berlin's uh, Joel Poyapalo, they will fight for the last place. Jensen scores from the bench for both club and country, so that might give you an indication of who will take up the starting berth for Finland. We'll be back tomorrow with the previews of Group C and D will be charting the likes of Netherlands, England and Scotland and Croatia, of course. Thank you for your continued support, both on Patreon and on YouTube and, of course, through the podcast feed, where you can listen to every single What If Football European Championship daily podcast that we've got for you right up on the way until July the 12th. Thank you for listening. Up three lions and see you tomorrow. Podcast Network. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.